The Tim Caps host the Minnesota Twins affiliated Cedar Rapids Colonels tonight. First pitch is coming up at 7.05 on what's the first ever Lou Gehrig Day in Major League and Minor League Baseball. It was on this day in 1925 that Gehrig became the Yankees starting first baseman. And sadly, it was also on this day in 1941 that he died at the age of 37 from ALS, now also known as Lou Gehrig's disease. So tonight at Parkview Field, select fans will win a copy of Lou Gehrig, The Lost Memoir, a book that came out just over a year ago, researched and written by Alan Gaff, who just happens to live right here in Fort Wayne. And it's a pleasure for us now to be joined by Alan. And Alan, thank you so much for your time, as well as your donation of these books to the team. And before we dive into Lou Gehrig's story, I know there's an interesting background to how you came to put this book together. Can you share that with us? Yeah, uh, my background is in military history. I've written about a dozen books on military history, but I began to use the skills that I developed there for a baseball book. And it all started when I was researching for a post-World War I story about several men who were uh, veterans but became involved in the uh, Prohibition era. Both of them were charged. One got off. The other got off because the witness suddenly turned up dead. But uh, there were a lot of interesting stories. But in the process of doing that, I ran across Lou Gehrig's columns that appeared in the Oakland Tribune. Uh, they, they began in August of 1927 and ran through the uh, World Series of 1927. It's an interesting situation. Here is a guy who's 24 years old, basically writing his autobiography for the company. The reason Lou's columns were in the Oakland paper was that his agent, Christy Walsh, realized that New York City was flooded with Yankee information. So he sought places outside of the metropolitan area where he could reach new audiences. And there were several places in the country where these columns appeared, but the Oakland paper had the most desirable set of columns because they were uh, on microfilm and the most legible for me to transcribe, as opposed to some that were really dull and uh, out of focus. So mm -hmm. that's where the impetus for the Lou Gehrig books, that's where the impetus for the Lou Gehrig book started. And from then I transcribed Lou's columns, got in touch with my agent, Roger Williams had to convince him that these were real and people had overlooked them forever since they appeared. They, because historians had just acted like they dropped off the face of the earth. No one has really ever used them. So once I convinced him, he got in touch with Stuart Roberts at Simon and Schuster. And we had to go through the same process with, with Stuart that we had with Roger, because no one believes these were true because it was too good to be true. But once I've convinced both of them, everything got rolling and uh, the book became uh, on their schedule and it's been highly su successful uh, ever since it's come out. What an incredible find. And what can readers learn from these columns written first person by Lou, as well as the biographical essay featured in the book? Well, one of the things that Simon & Schuster wanted me to do was have a biographical essay to complement Lou's story. So I was given a, uh, a word count of about 20,000 words to sum up a man's life story, kind of weaseled around a bit and got about 25,000 words. So there's a, a book that's two parts. 
lose my partner. He does the first part. And then I put everything into context in the second part. What are some of your favorite stories and anecdotes from Lou in these columns? I, I think the one I like best is when he first met Tris Speaker. Uh, Speaker and Babe Ruth were having a conversation because they played together and opposed each other for years. And Lou was just fresh on the team. And he was like a, a kid meeting his hero for the first time. He was standing with his, his cap in his hands, just listening to every word but not saying anything, just in awe of, of these two figures, but especially Tris Speaker, his, uh, his hero. Turned out it, during the 1927 season, the newspapers used to carry a, uh, a compilation of how Tris Speaker, Babe Ruth, Honus Wagner, and Ty Cobb were doing on a daily basis. By July, they had included 24-year-old Lou Gehrig in that uh, elect group of, of players, and uh, it was an awesome place for him to be, that being that young with, with all of those established baseball players. Absolutely. And again, part of the special nature of your discovery here is that these columns were written in 1927 when the Yankees had what some would consider to be the greatest or most dominant team of all time when it was Babe Ruth hitting 60 home runs. But Lou Gehrig actually having the American League MVP season that he did. And I know you learned a lot about the relationship between Lou and Babe. What was that like? I think the most interesting part of the relationship was Babe Ruth thought of Lou Gehrig as a little brother when they first started. There were problems later on in the relationship, but the first years, he just took him by the, by the hand, put his shoulder, his arm around his shoulders, said, you know, I'm going to give you advice. I'm going to help you uh, on, on how to hit. I'm going to help you on how to field, and I'm going to help you on how to invest your money. And when he told Lou that he was going to help invest his money, Everybody that was within earshot just burst out laughing because by that time, Babe Ruth had gone through probably a quarter of a million dollars of his own money, just squandered that he had gotten through his salary, through endorsements, through public appearances. So the rest of the team thought it was just highly uh, irregular for, for Babe to give financial advice to a newcomer. <laughs> and you had referenced uh, Ty Cobb, another one of the, the stars of that era. And I understand that Lou's relationship with Ty Cobb is one that evolved over time and eventually was one of mutual respect and admiration, but at least initially it was on the more contentious side, right? Yes, it was. At one point, uh, I had found information that other baseball historians hadn't uh, found the exact citations for. They'd alluded to it, but there was actually a knockdown, dragout fist fight between Lou and Babe Ruth, as opposed to Ty Cobb, after the game was over in the, uh, in the tunnel on the way to the, the locker rooms. It, literally a knockdown dragout fight. The Lou was knocked unconscious. Somebody said it was because it was a fist from uh, Ty Cobb. Others said it was he fell against a, a concrete pillar and was knocked out. Uh, Babe Ruth ended up chasing Ty Cobb into the locker room, but the rest of the team pushed him out and slammed the door in his face. So uh, it was it was a real fight. Well, after the tin caps just were involved in a fight on the road last week in South Bend, it's good to know that it's nothing new and it's something that has existed in the game for uh, about 100 years or more. 
apparently uh, baseball hasn't changed that much. Yeah. When you look back at Lou Gehrig and his career, not only as a ball player, but the life that he lived, what made him special? Lou Gehrig was the kind of person that you would want as a friend. Uh, And he's also the kind of person that makes you hope there are more like him in the world. He was shy. He was quiet. But he was determined. He was a first-generation American. His parents had both come from Germany. And he got to where he was by determination and hard work. It was a true Horatio Alger story. And some of your listeners that are younger may have to look up that term. But it was a success story in every respect. In all the research I did, I never found one person who said anything bad about Lou Gehrig. There would be scuffles during a game. There were games when he got thrown out by an umpire, but there were never any long-term implications of any, any person at all, even, even in the stands, that had anything bad to say about Lou Gehrig. Well, from rags to riches, an all-time legend, and now being recognized by Major League and Minor League Baseball with a special day of commemoration, joining just Jackie Robinson and Roberto Clemente, In this class, what was your reaction earlier this year when MLB announced that Lou Gehrig would be recognized in this way? I thought it was one of the best things that Major League Baseball has ever done for society. ALS is a a terribly devastating disease. And uh, just because Lou Gehrig died from that disease, it has now become popularly known as Lou Gehrig's disease. So... By, by pointing to not only Gehrig's life and statistics as a ball player, but also the way he met his untimely death, Major League Baseball is putting a lot of emphasis on supporting research for their ALS Foundation, and I think it's the best thing they've done for a long time. And I know for you to celebrate this day, you were kind enough to make a donation to the ALS Association. And for anyone listening, you can do the same by visiting ALS.org, the chapter here in Northeast Indiana as well. And speaking of the community here in Fort Wayne, there are a couple of connections uh, with Lou Gehrig, including the fact that he actually made an appearance here before. He actually made an appearance here during the 1927 season. Back in those days, If baseball teams had days off for travel, the owners arranged to have exhibition games played on the route so that the owners could make a little more money, even though the players got nothing out of it. So in this case, they had finished a homestand on the East Coast and were going to Chicago to play the White Sox. There was a day of travel, so they made arrangements since the railroad came right through Fort Wayne for them to play a team from Lincoln Life on May 6th of 1927. So Fort Wayne got a chance to see Lou Gehrig, Babe Ruth, and the rest of the team during that season for what I think is the best baseball team ever. Right, and many would agree with you. And then that year when he was writing these newspaper columns, he was writing them himself first person, which nowadays, if we see something published by a professional athlete, the assumption is made that there's a ghostwriter. And that was even commonplace a hundred or so years ago. But for the most part, it was Lou, who you discovered, wrote these himself. I, I know, though, by the time it came to the end of the season, when he was competing in the World Series, he did get a little bit of assistance 
in writing his columns. And that actually came from another Northeast Indiana native in Ford Frick. Yeah, that's, that's correct. During the regular season, when he started to uh, write these columns, it's, it went really well at first, but then he realized that it's not as easy to become an author as he thought it was. So he would become uh, uh, a little behind. His columns wouldn't appear in the, uh, in the order they were supposed to. They were late. So when baseball got to the World Series, his agent arranged for Ford Frick, who was born in Milwaukee and went to school in Rome City, to help him. And I, I, I think Lou wrote most of the columns. I think Ford Frick just touched them up, made them better for uh, newspaper columns, because there, there was no way uh, that Lou could do it. He had to have a, a hard and fast deadline. If he wrote his column on the first game of the World Series while the second one had started, it didn't mean anything. It had to be done on time, and that's why he had some assistance. But I think basically the bulk of everything was done by Lou Gehrig. And Ford Frick would then go on to become the third commissioner of baseball and to this day is recognized in Cooperstown with an award named after him that goes out to outstanding broadcasters. And at Parkview Fields, there is a section sign uh, commemorating Ford Frick's impact on the game and including here in Northeast Indiana. Uh, Alan, what else? Maybe someday you'll win that award. (laughs) <laughs> that's what we're working towards. <laughs> we'll see. <laughs> one I hope so. <laughs> one step at a time, you and me both. And Alan, what else would you like for people to know about the Lou Gehrig that you got to know? I've heard you say that you started this project covering Lou Gehrig by the end of it. You felt like you got to know Lou on a first name basis, but his legacy as again, not just a ball player, but as a person. Well, as a personal note, when I started this project, I always referred to him as Gehrig or Lou Gehrig. But by the time I got maybe halfway through it, he was just Lou. He was, you know, a friend who is no longer here, but I I felt a real uh, closeness to him. And I think people who learn about him will feel the same way. He was a remarkable individual, achieved wonderful things, and was taken too early. So it's a, it's a, a success story and a tragedy all rolled into one. It would make a great movie. And I guess shortly after his life, it did become a movie with the pride of the Yankees. Uh, and even though he was such uh, an incredible talent and a hulking, strong, physical figure at the same time, still a very relatable person from, as you mentioned, uh, humble upbringing difficulties in his home life, but yet a very close relationship with his mother and even overcoming as a kid being out of shape and not always the most athletic and really learning the lessons of hard work and eventually achieving his goals. Yeah, he he didn't even speak English until he went to uh, kindergarten at uh, at school because even even after he was playing in the major leagues, he would go home and he would converse with his mom and dad in German. And naturally, he had a German Shepherd as a pet. Hmm. So uh, he, he was proud of his roots. And basically, he got his start by going with his dad to the Turnverein, which is like a German social club. And while his dad would play cards, he would go work out on the, uh, on the physical equipment, whatever, whatever they had. I don't know. But yeah, that's, that's where he got his start as far as building his body. And if, if you see the book, there's a picture in there which shows 
his upper torso, he looks like somebody who could go into a cage match today. He was that awesome in his upper body. As a matter of fact, one of the things he really was worried about was the fact that during batting practice or even during a game that he would hit one of his line drives back to the pitcher and kill him. He was, he was, he was that worried about his ability and his strength that he did not want to hurt people, but he was afraid that it might happen. And he put that strength to use sitting 493 home runs in his remarkable career, uh, which again, Alan documented in Lou Gehrig, the lost memoir and Alan for listeners here in Fort Wayne who are interested in the book, where can they find it as well as those from outside of the area and beyond? Well, the book is available wherever books are sold. It's uh, available on the internet, um, major retailers, we personally in, in my family like to shop at local bookstores. So if I can plug for Hyde Brothers Books, I'll do that. Uh, I'm sure they would help you find a copy if you need one. Anywhere you look, I think you'll be able to find it. The reviews have been overwhelmingly positive. And one thing that I, I might mention is that over the course of time, I've heard from numerous people who are friends as well as total strangers telling me that uh, they finished my portion of the book in tears. So people do learn about Lou Gehrig and appreciate what he gave to the sport. Very touching. And yes, the book has been acclaimed by Sports Illustrated, by Jeremy Schapp of ESPN, Bob Costas, and the list goes on. And Alan, for those who want to keep up with you and your other work, books that you've written, how can they follow you on social media and online with your website? The easiest way is just remember alandgaff.com. Links to all the social media is on that website. So it's a good place to start. There's a blog as, also, as well as social media. So um, <clears throat> I've, I don't have a big following yet, but it's getting bigger all the time. And we hope to see it continue to grow. Alan, thank you again so much for your time here, as well as your contribution to, to our baseball community. Not to mention, I know that you're a veteran, and we thank you for your service as well. Just thank you so much. Well, thank you, John, and go Tim Caps. There you go. And we will have more after this on the Tim Caps Radio Network. Podcasts by Federated Media.